Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man means you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And thank you for being with us this Saturday night at Our Common Ground where we speak truth as our language, uh, our first language. And we thank you so much for joining us and you are joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight with my co-host, Alpha of the Alpha Show which airs at TruthWorks Network. Alpha, good evening, and thank you so much for joining me once again tonight. How are you? I'm just well, Dennis. How are you this evening? I'm doing well, as always. I am in hope, and um, I have been spared the knowledge of grace. How is that? Uh, that Is that will, deep enough for you? That will work. <laughs> uh, for those of you who are listening here at Our Common Ground and you are not on the Blog Talk Radio site, I would like to let you know that you can join our chatters uh, in our chat room that we host during the course of the broadcast at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. This is the best the town hall meeting, the university in the air of Internet broadcasting. We are not here to entertain. We won't even describe ourselves, Alpha, as infotainment. You know, some people try to go that way. It's not infotainment. This is information. This is the Air Force getting ready for planning, organizing, resisting, and making a difference in African-American communities across this country and connecting you uh, with a pan-African relationship 
across the globe. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm your host, and this is a continuation of our effort to educate, inform, assist you in critical thinking about issues and concerns in and about the black community. Tonight, our guest will be Dr. Derek Hamilton. He is a member of the faculty of the Department of Economics at the New School of Management and Urban Policy, and we're going to be talking about the causes, consequences, and remedies of racial and ethnic inequality in economic and health outcomes, which includes an examination of the intersection of identity, racism, colorism, and socioeconomic uh, outcomes want to tell you a little bit about our guest. He is an assistant professor at Milano, the New School for Management and Urban Policy, an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Economics at the New School for Social Research, an affiliated scholar at the Center for American Progress, and a co-associate director of the American Economic Association Summer Resource and Minority Scholarship Program. He earned his Ph.D. from the Department of Economics at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill in 1999, and upon graduation received the National Economic Association's 2001 Rhonda M. Williams Dissertation Award, which is not easy to do. When I was in business school, when I finished my dissertation, when I completed my challenges, I could have cared less whether I got an award and uh, getting through it is what is an award enough. Professor Hamilton was a Ford Foundation Fellow on Poverty, the Underclass and Public Policy at the Poverty Research and Training Center and the Program for Research on Black Americans, both at the University of Michigan and Auburn from 1999 to 2001, and a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Scholar in Health Policy Research at the Institution for Policy Studies at Yale. He's published articles on disparities in wealth, home ownership, and labor market outcomes, and his articles can be found in many of the impressive professional publications uh, in this country and abroad. I do want to uh, say and let you know that on June 10th of this year, he received the George Fox Distinguished Alumnus Award from the Brooklyn Friends School, of which he is a graduate. And... um, that goes to speak to Dr. Derek Hamilton's continued involvement in Reach One, Teach One, and Looking Back. Um, So we are so very pleased to have uh, Dr. Derek Hamilton, and you should get your questions together because we're going to be talking about the wealth gap. We're going to be talking about asset-to-wealth theories, of the national debt, 
the national deficit and what it means in the black economy and how inequalities operate within uh, our U.S. economy to the adverse impact and outcomes of African Americans. We're also going to be talking about some solutions, and it is with a great deal of pleasure uh, that I welcome for the first time, but won't be the last time, Dr. Derek Hamilton to Our Common Ground. Thank you, Dr. Hamilton, and welcome. Well, thank you very much for that generous, warm introduction, Um, and you can feel free to call me Derek. Um, I just have one minor correction, and that is uh, last year I got promoted from assistant to associate professor, so (laughs) I just wanted to make that one little minor correction. Well, congratulations (laughs) to you, Uh, and please um, uh, greet uh, my co-host, Alpho, out there in Chicago, who has been following the national economy and the politics of the economy for sometime and I'm sure that he's going to be jumping in and he has a number of questions especially around the issue of the deficit. But Derek, tell us a little about and I should tell you that I am such a supporter of the French school system of education. My daughter is a graduate of the French school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um And I understand that you spent uh, your 12 years at the French school in the Brooklyn French school. What a fine, fine way to begin your life as far as I'm concerned. But tell us a little about your growing up. Are you you a native of of Brooklyn? So I was born and raised in Brooklyn. And as you pointed out, I went to Brooklyn Friends from first grade to 12th grade. and, And I agree. I think it's a very strong foundation I had. I, I love the approach to education from the Society of Friends. Um, they're, they're unambiguous in that not only do they promote a strong academic training, but they also promote spiritual va- spiritual values and, and a desire for their students to give back to their community. I, I actually <laughs> now even sit on the Board of Trustees at Brooklyn Friends because, um, you know, we, we have limited time and, and there are lots of causes we want to give back to. And, uh, I, I just admire their approach and, and what they give so much that it, if I have my have to use my time it, wisely, that I think is a good use of my time. But again, I just wish that we could we could expand that type of model so that um, many others could have access to that type of education. Well, one of the things that uh, drew me to the French school as a parent uh, was that. The French school has always been an open educational system for African Americans, even at the time of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I think their record, their impressive record of human rights um, and the willingness to allow young people to not only excel academically, but to discover their humanity. In what they learn, and um, I'm 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 very proud to um, have uh, a product of that school system. Now, where did you do your undergraduate work? So I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. 
which again uh-huh. was a was a nice transition from Brooklyn Friends. You know, I, I feel very fortunate in my educational training. I, I went to Oakland at the Brooklyn Friends, and Oakland also has a, a history of educating um, black students. They were the first non-HBCU to admit a black student and graduate a black student. They, you know, so they have a a nice strong tradition that carried over. I think carries over today. It's not a perfect school, but they also enhanced my foundation to, of who I am today. Mhm, mhm, mhm. And 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 at what juncture did you decide that you would be uh, become an economist? So I went into e- economics thinking, what what major could offer me the best chance to make as much money as possible? Um, because I guess I didn't come from a lot of resources, so that that was a goal. But actually, as I saw many different ways in which I could make a living and, and have a life, I realized that money wasn't central to, to my existence. I wanted to have a comfortable existence, but there were other other things I wanted to do. So um, early on, I decided I definitely wanted – I loved school, so I wanted to stay in school and stay in higher education. But economics, I fell in love with it probably – when I took the more advanced courses, after I took the, the technical tools courses like micro and macro theory. But when you, I saw it applied, I, I felt that um, in terms of disciplines, I like their approach, the, the way the economists think, that there's some objective that, that we're trying to reach, but there's scarcity. So given given scarcity, how do we? what's the best we can do to reach our objective? I like that way of framing and thinking about a variety of things. And I also saw that economics wasn't limited to what we traditionally might think of stock markets, financial markets, that economics can bear on basically any problem, any facet of life. We can apply economics and and try to come up with solutions and ways to mitigate the problem. Mhm. If you if you look at the cadre of uh, commentary that most Americans are are exposed to in this country through the media, like uh, the um, uh, NBC financial network and some of the shows on network uh, TV and radio where the focus is on the economic climate of the country, uh, talking about all aspects of the economy, you never see an African American face, and I've talked with your your colleague um, William Sandy Darity about this numerous times. And one of the things that I did maybe about four years ago is some research on who are the economists and uh, African American economists in this country and what they are doing. And many of them are so confined to doing simply teaching and some research and that they are not engaged in the dialogue. And so I'm really anxious to start off our discussion tonight uh, about what you feel as a as a professional economist uh, is uh, the, how we need to shift our policies okay. uh, so, to so. address racial inequality and kind of set the tone for what you believe that African-American people really need to focus on. You know, I, I did get a chance to to read your, your uh, Bill Darity's piece that you sent me about 
uh, full employment for for in this country. And I also, and it's something that he and I had talked about about two years ago on this program, and that is full employment, guaranteed full employment for all Americans. But I'm also very interested in some work that you have done with Manning Marable, who who has been, um, I, I can almost consider him a lifelong friend because we we met each other our freshman year in college. So... <laughs> Um, um, so talk to us about what you believe our needs are in terms of changing policy to to address the adverse impact of economic programs, economic st- uh, status, and economic standards in this country. So, so that's an excellent question, an excellent framing question. But before I even answer it, I wanted to say a couple of things about some of the things you said regarding the absence of um, black economists in the popular discourse and on in the media discussing some of these issues when, when we turn on the, the news shows, on the Sunday news shows, for example. Um, there actually is a so, – so I agree wholeheartedly that there definitely is an absence of us. And oftentimes when the ones that you do see us, when you do see us, you often see us talking about – behavioral issues within the black community as being the culprit for inequality. And as you'll hear through the through our discussion tonight, you'll see that I'm in a very different camp as to what I think might be the explanations for the large disparities that exist. But I wanted to give a sort of a, I wanted to give a plug. There's recently the founder of the Caucus of Black Economists, Marcus Alexis, passed away. So there is a group of economists, and I'm fortunate to be amongst them, that is trying to organize a symposium to do a couple of things. One is to honor Marcus Alexis, his contributions, and two, to highlight some of the black economists that are engaged in uh, engaged in research addressing the black community. So um, Margaret Sims is, is one of the people that are spear, this spearheading this. Margaret Sims is at the Urban Institute, and she's working with um, – People out of UCLA, the, the dean of the business school out of UCLA. I'm, I'm sorry I forget his name at this point, and that's that's really bad. I wish I could remember his name. But we're we're working to organize this symposium, and that's going to take place probably February of, of next year. And it is our intent to to highlight the work of Black economists, and we expect to to promote it big. And and I think if you tune in and we get other people to tune in, you you'll see that there are indeed people engaged in this work and have some meaningful things to say and, and um, offer some solutions on how we can address the problem. <clears throat> so um, that said, That's I guess great. As, as a matter of fact, toward the end of the show, I also want to talk about um, um, with you about an initiative that I have thought about in terms of the new um, – powerhouse network that's coming online at the end of the week where Keith Oberman is going, and that is to mm-hmm. talk to Al Gore about the possibility of having a roundtable, a, a nightly roundtable of black economists to talk about the black, uh, the black wealth gap and, and the black um, economy. So we'll talk about that later. But, but tell us about what you think the 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 need is for sh- the shift that we need in policy, uh, okay. and 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 also summarize for us what you think are the biggest 
uh, wealth and economic inequalities that African Americans face. All right. So the U.S. is characterized by a longstanding large structural racial inequality that only deepens further during economic downturns. So, for example, right now we know that the white unemployment rate is somewhere around 8.5%, where the black rate is close to 16%. Um, so that's large, and it's very alarming, and, that, and we see that every day. But, you know, if we think about a longstanding history, over the past 40 years, there's been less than five years in which the white rate has superseded 8%, where we would consider that a severe recession, where in contrast there's only been one year where the black rate has been below 8%. So blacks are in a constant state of, of recession, or you might even argue depression. If we look at jobs themselves, we can talk about, you know, 90% of U.S. occupations can be classified as racially segregated by various measures. Um, we, we've made some, we've made a great deal of progress with regard, with, with regards to education if we look over the 20th century, but we still have a stubborn, persistent achievement gap that, that we haven't been able to do much about since the mid-1970s. And in terms of income, we've made dramatic improvements, but again, since about the mid-1970s, you know, it's almost as if we, whatever type of movement we had towards equality seemed to dissipate and, and the gap just remained stagnant. But probably the biggest indicator of racial inequality, one that we don't talk a lot about, and probably, you know, a key indicator of individuals' well-being is the wealth gap. You know, why is wealth important? Wealth is important to finance an expensive education. If you want to go to a place like Brooklyn Friends, um, if you want to go to a college like Oberlin, oftentimes families finance it with, with wealth. If you want to start a business, right, we talk about, well, lack of entrepreneurship. What's the key ingredient to starting a business? Capital, financial capital, access to capital, and many small Business owners started their business with wealth. If you want to reside in better neighborhoods with lower crime, better amenity, you need wealth. If you want to exert political influence through campaign financing, you need wealth. If you're faced with problems with the legal system, the criminal justice system, and you want to hire a legal defense team, the best legal defense that you can hire, you need wealth. These, are, these things aren't financed out of income. They're financed out of wealth. If you're faced with an expensive medical procedure, again, you need wealth. Any number of financial hardship you could face, you, you need wealth to finance it. Um, so with that in mind, the black-white wealth gap, we have about 10 cents on a dollar for every for every every dollar in wealth that a typical white family has, a black family has about 10 cents. So using the 2006 Survey of Income and Program Participation, the typical white family had about $122,000 in wealth, whereas the typical black family had a little, little less than 12000 That's a gap of $110,000. So all, put this in context of all the things that I mentioned of why wealth is important, then we can see that, you know, we could talk about all the explanations people might want to talk about, well, blacks don't save, blacks don't do that. By the way, those things are, are largely a myth, and I could talk about why they're a myth also, um, through this conversation, but uh, to me, the most obvious reason for why we have large inequality and continual inequality is the lack of resources in, in the black community. So what can we do about it? Is the problem insurmountable? I say no. The federal government has a history of creating a middle class in this country. The policies from FDR, the great, you know, then we had the great society, so we had depression-era policies that basically generated a middle class in the U.S., 
The only problem is that blacks were excluded from those policies. They they didn't benefit from them. But you know, we we can do things today to to address the wealth gap. But we need bold policies. We need to stop with subsistent policies aimed at um, income supports and things like that. I'm not saying we get rid of them, but clearly they're not going to lead to a transformative society. We need something that's going to transform society and and, uh, give people access to, you know, if we want a a fair society where people can have opportunity, then we need some bold transformative policies that allow people to access capital at key points in their life. You know, I've been working with Sandy Darity on – what we call a baby bond pr- proposal. Um, so I didn't work directly with Manny Marable, um, and as you mentioned, it, 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 we definitely should give him accolades for the great work he's done. Um, but but he coined the phrase baby bonds, and what it is is what we're talking about is how development accounts that are progressive, progressive in the sense that you the the account that you get that you're endowed with at birth is based on your family wealth position. So those that are from the most wealth poor family would get a large endowment at birth that would grow at one and a half to two percent guaranteed rate up until the time they turn eighteen years of age, and then they could use that capital to have access to things that can grow their assets in the future, such as financing and higher education, such as starting a new business, such as purchasing a home. So that mm-hmm. it so that all these right, so here's a, a policy that's seemingly race neutral. Because today's political climate, it seems very difficult for us to even consider something, a policy that's race-based. You know, by the way, if the most efficient policy to address the racial wealth gap would be one that's race-targeted, such as a reparation program. But if we even take reparations off the table, which I don't think we should, but if we were to, then something like a baby bonds program that allows any family, any every American, we could, we could say that 75% of all newborns could have access to a baby bond it would mature when they turn 18 years of age and they can use towards some sort of capital investment. And, you know, the average bond could be about $20,000 and we could have it again progressively rising to the most well-poor families receiving about $60,000. So a policy like that would have a, a very significant and impactful, impactful effect on the black-white wealth gap, namely because black and white families are so disparate in terms of wealth. If I were to draw a graph of the wealth distribution of a white of, of white households and a graph of the wealth distribution of black households, the two graphs would be would, would overlap very little. Eighty five percent of black households have below the median wealth. The median wealth of a typical white household. I'm gonna say that again because I think it's it's important for us to really understand how disparate we are. Eighty five percent have below what the typical white household has. So only 15% of us have above average in the white household, of, of mm-hmm. what white households have. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things when, when, when we try to discuss the racial uh, wealth gap in this country, we have to also calculate in the formula this whole notion of uh, being in a post-racial period. Yeah. And there are many people who would respond and say that the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, was created as a result of slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation, and em- employment and educational disparities uh, prior to 
the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But I I did read um, um, your baby bonds eliminating the racial wealth gap uh, in post-racial America. I did read your um, parts of it. And one of the things that I think our, our audience would be interested in is are the things that post-racially, if you want to accept the notion that we are in a post-racial era, um, having to do with recent, February, you know, from 2009 uh, up to 2011, some of the some of the events in the asset markets that have occurred uh, that also deepened the wealth racial wealth gap. Can you talk about that? Sure, and, and I'm glad you brought up the notion of, of a post-racial society because in a lot of ways I don't think this ideology is new. Um, I think it's an extension of the Moynihan ideology of tangle of pathology as the explanation for um, black-white inequality. You know, you, we know the Moynihan report describes um, attitudes and norms that came out of the black community that was self, self-defeating, that um, they, they developed these behaviors that, that actually – inhibited their own progress. And I'd say that post-racial ideology is nothing but an extension of of that, what I'm going to call, false ideology to begin with. So, you know, the post-racial ideology will acknowledge the success of people like Barack Obama, the people like, um, uh, why am I not thinking of his name, the former head of Time Warner. Um, Richard Richard Parsons, thank you. Um, Yeah. so, you know, there have been successful blacks in virtually every endeavor of of U.S. existence at this point. So post, the post-racial ideology will say something like, well, if they can do it, why can't you? Um, mm-hmm. Well, the, the problem is, uh, you know, these, these black exceptionalisms, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we, we all had access to the resources they have. Um, I'm, I'm going to, just in line with the post-racial ideology, I'm going to, quote something that I found pretty pejorative that actually came from our president that, that I, you know, that is highly consistent with post-racial ideology. Um, he, you know, he explains examples of black exceptionalism as resulting from individual and familial acts of perseverance and hard work. So the presumption is those blacks that don't make it, they didn't have that. So their families didn't work hard and they didn't persevere. So indeed, during his 2009 address to the 100th anniversary celebration of the NAACP, Obama offers himself and the hard work of his parenting behavior of his mother as an explanation for his own success. So here's what he said, quote, I was raised by a single mom. I didn't come from a lot of wealth. My life could have easily taken a turn for the worse. When I drive through Harlem or I drive through the south side of Chicago, I see young men on the corners. I say, there but for the grace of God go I. They're no less gifted than me. They're no less talented than me. But I had some breaks. That mother of mine, she gave me love. She pushed me. She cared about my education. She took no lip. She taught me right from wrong. Because of her, I had a chance to make the most of my abilities. So I'm going to end the quote, but I'm going to give you my analysis of this. What is missing from Obama's narrative is the fact that his single mother had a Ph.D., the fact that he received Mm -hmm. an elite education both abroad in Indonesia and domestically while on Mm -hmm. scholarship at one of the best private schools in Hawaii. Instead, he emphasizes the love, motivation, and discipline that his mother instilled, which presumably is lacking in the household of black, mm-hmm. black 
inner city comparisons, right? So I don't I don't buy that narrative. I wouldn't offer myself as an example because no doubt my mother worked very hard, but I also know I've been very privileged. I know that many mm-hmm. people don't have access to a Brooklyn Friends education. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'm working very hard to try to change the paradigm so that people will have access to that. But um, by no means would I, you know, I, I find it pejorative. I, I would not mm-hmm. come up and say, why can't they do it? I did it. That, and let me, let me uh, uh, offer my own uh, component to that. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I have noted, and, and I, was, I was outraged by his statement because it, it informed me that he does not understand some of the socioeconomic dynamics that have occurred in this country in the past and in the present. And I say that because at the time that he was in Indonesia, he was in the fourth grade. That is when black children in public schools in America, black boys, begin to fail. So whatever happens between the fourth grade and the sixth grade to black boys in this country during in that age in that age period, it he was not here to be the recipient yeah. of the kind of uh, esteem destruction that happens. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I just want to add that to me, one of the most dangerous elements of it is if we as a people buy into the notion that um, all you have to do is work hard and pull yourself up by the bootstrap and you'll be fine. Because the problem is we, we lose out our, you know, link fate, our, our notion of collective struggle. So if, if we mm-hmm. try mm-hmm. to address this inequality from an individual standpoint as opposed to a collective front, I think that's pretty dangerous for us. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. that has. And and if we and if we buy in into that, and if that is so, and if that is uh, 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 factual, then Sandy Garrity would be the chair of the Federal Reserve Bank. <laughs> I would love that role. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, and, and, and that's not to take away Bill Smith's role. Uh, mm-hmm. For those of you who are listening, um, I think I might be saying his, his, it is Bill Smith. Uh, he was the chair of the Federal Reserve Board for maybe about 10 years. So that's not taking anything away from who he is, but it does it speaks to just what you just said that the narrative that uh President Obama lays out for us is not an accurate one and it's a dangerous one that's that, that's the other element i want to you know it's not we you know we we have to be willing to be critical of ourselves if if it can be if if it i think leads to harm and the narrative that we are in a post-racial society. I think it's very dangerous, and I think the danger is when we buy into that, if indeed it's not true. I would love for mm-hmm. us to be in a post-racial society. I'd love for us to be in a world where race is no longer a defining attribute for one's socioeconomic success or not, but it simply is not true. And um, mm-hmm. as long as it's not true for us, to, for us as a people to buy into it, Again, it becomes dangerous because we. And mm-hmm. the reason why it becomes dangerous, I, I really want to make this point, is because we lose our notions of linked fate and collective struggle. Mhm, mhm. Now, what 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 can the public sector do in terms of the development 
of 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 policy one of the one of the things you pr- proposed is the uh baby bond program talk a little about i know that you have worked with uh others uh on the issue of full em- and uh full employment about the national Inve- investment um employment corporation providing job guarantees for all citizens as another strategy that the public sector can undertake and also please blend it in with whether you you think that there is a public will mm-hmm. to uh to eliminate the structural impediments to black business creation and growth uh to somehow fix the consumer uh economy for black people in terms of what has happened in regard to predatory lending uh and and mortgage foreclosure and the public policy that didn't address um uh the kind of program that was needed for individuals in the foreclosure crisis okay all right, so I, if I forget to address some elements, please remind me. But I'm, I'm going to okay. I'm going to start with the um, the notion of, of full employment. That there, I'll say that there's there've been people that have been working on full employment, and there was a conference this past fall, I think it was in October at Howard University, um, put on by the economics department there that um, addressed. So full employment solutions to the economic crisis, and by full employment we need we mean guaranteed jobs for all willing um individuals that that desire jobs that the federal government would be a guarantor of jobs um of last resort for the most part so um Sandy Darity has an article, and William Sandy Darity has an article in the Review of Black Political Economy that outlines a a proposal that he has in mind a federal jobs guarantee, right, by the way, in that same issue, that's where you can find the baby bonds proposal we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. But, uh, okay, so given that background, basically the federal government would function as an employer of last resort. It would have special significance in economic bad times, like now, because uh, all these individuals that aren't work, whose skills are are corroding and who who are probably – experiencing psychological damage because they're out of work for so long, well, we we would have less of a loss in times like these if if they were actually employed rather than unemployed. The jobs would be useful. I'm not talking about wasteful jobs that just just, uh, have people employed and collecting a check. I'm talking about jobs that would lead to valuable public investment, like building out deteriorating physical and human infrastructure. We have collapsing bridges, roads. You know, we need more rapid transit. We can have improvements in our human infrastructure by building better hospitals, we can build new schools, we can uh, build parks, we can build housing. So there's work in this country that could be done. Um, A program like this would probably reduce the need for a lot of subsistence programs, such as TANF and SNAPs. We wouldn't even need a minimum wage. If you had a, a federal job guarantee, then you wouldn't have to sanction the private sector with a minimum wage because the the job guarantee in and of itself would sanction the private sector. You would have, because, you you know, if, if a federal job is paying X wages, then obviously the private sector would have to pay similar wages or higher if they want to attract workers. It would okay. eliminate... And it would, go ahead, I'm sorry. 
it, it would, would also place a floor on the conditions of employment in the private sector. Exactly. Such as we wouldn't we would need have less of a need for health insurance reform if we have federal job guarantees that included benefits like health insurance. We would we wouldn't need unemployment insurance because there'd be a federal mm-hmm. job guarantee. It would stimulate the economy and have spillover effects into things like um, foreclosure. We'd have reduced foreclosure because people would not be unemployed but be employed and, and generating wages to pay their mortgage. It would avoid skill and motivation deterioration. It would also help us with stigmatized populations such as ex-offenders, individuals that have served time in jail and now want to uh, enter the labor force. Well, a lot of times they can't get a job because people aren't willing to give them a job regardless of their desire to work. If we had a federal job guarantee, then that, that population could indeed be um, it be employed in, the, in a much larger scale than they actually are. It, re, it would reduce social costs like crime, drug use, even out-of-wedlock out marriage. And then this is the final point I want to make about that. this, is that it would structurally change the U.S. economy away from low-wage work. We, in a, regardless of your, you know, if given, let, if we take globalization as a given, if we consider that the U.S. now is competing with um, various places in, in the world for manufacturing and, and other types of things, I'm, I'm not arguing that we don't need a manufacturing base in the U.S., but if you consider that we're competing in a global economy, um, low-wage work, we, we don't really have a competitive edge in that in that world. There are other countries that can produce w- Mm-hmm. Produce items mm-hmm. at lower wages better than us. Well, if we have a federal job guarantee, it would structurally change the economy away from that type of work. The jobs in the private sector that, that exist would would um, almost necessarily be um, structurally different and away from low wage work, and might even enhance U.S. competition ability to compete in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know that Alpha has a question. And it has to do with the political will and the political climate to okay. even consider and undertake a consideration of such a reasonable uh, and strategically effective uh, policy. But we, before Alpha takes off on the political, I want to take a break, and I want to thank our listeners for being with us here at our Common Ground tonight. Our guest is Dr. Derek Hamilton. He is a professor at the New School of Management and Urban Policy. Stay with us. We'll be right back. And when we come back, Alpha is going to speak with Derek Hamilton about political will in really resolving some of these um, um, actually saving us from a collapse. I'm Janice Graham. We'll be right back. If it's Saturday night, it's Talk That Matters at our common ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. I believe in sex. I believe in love. I believe in taking responsibility. I believe in using condoms. Yo confío en mi comunidad. I believe in being honest and open. 
I believe in keeping my partner safe. I believe in myself. I believe in stopping HIV. I believe in the future. HIV stops with me. 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 Economic growth and the political will for that 
you have a you have a systemic problem with the counterpart, and not just the counterpart of Republicans. There's also a shameless level of Democrats who fight tooth and nail to the to the death that this doesn't happen. I am sure that this president knows something about the economic side that you simply laid out and is you were absolutely right. You were abs- I mean I look at I look at that as being well, just damn, why isn't this, you know, common knowledge amongst the members of the Black Caucus? Why isn't this their priority, one of their top priorities? You know, when you speak about the government being the last uh, resource, being the higher of last resorts, mm-hmm. and from what we have come from, had this president started out repairing Wall Street and shifting to repair Main Street in the way you laid out, we would be a lot further along. He cedes his power, and he tries to appease the people who dislike him and mm-hmm. who are basically rooting and pulling and manipulating his failure. But it, to me, it's 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 a, it's a even a bigger problem with the disparity and and black wealth. We mm-hmm. as a people, do we have that that um, motivation, that drive to educate ourselves as far as when it comes to economics, when it comes to finances? The we have no finances. Finances are not being taught at any level other than a college program. Okay, so um, I guess I'll, I'll respond to some of the things. That, Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff, to me had a great quote when he said, you never want to I'm, – I'm going to misquote him. I'm, I'm probably going to paraphrase a little bit. But basically the, the notion is that – you." Always want to take advantage of an economic crisis. Never, never miss the chance to take advantage of an economic crisis. Um, it, never let a good crisis go to waste. I think that's what he said. Yeah, that's what the he president, said. Mm-hmm. The president yeah. let a good crisis go to waste. In, in times of of, of uh, severe economic downturns or econ- or crises in general, presidents have broad powers to to do bold things, to come up with bold policies. I think had we had when he came into office when we were um, in this severe severe recession and we were concerned about whether we were going to make it the, the next month or the next day, he had an opportunity to come up with a bold policy such as the Full Employment Act. I think he had an opportunity to do that. So I will disagree with probably a lot of people that say, oh, he never could have had that opportunity. I, I think he had an opportunity to come up with something akin to a, a full employment type act. But you know it was wasted. It, it was he chose to go a different route and pursue different things. And you, you talked about the bailout for Wall Street, yeah. And, and, I, and I agree. He he had no condition. He had bailouts for Wall Street with no conditions. Um, I, I'll also say you you mentioned the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, we we criticize politicians a lot, but here's an opportunity where I'm going to actually applaud the Congressional Black Caucus because the the speech that you played in the beginning was actually a speech delivered to them 
Um, and they kept a lot of the proposals that I had in there, along with some other fellow black economists, about addressing this crisis. So they even, you know, in their in their shadow budget, they included provisions for Full Employment Act, and they included provisions for um, a significant child development account, the baby bonds, which I've talked about as well. So, you know, I applaud the Congressional Black Caucus for at least having the audacity to, to propose bold policies such as such as those two. Um, and then that brings me back to our own motivation and drive with regards to accumulating wealth. I'm going to argue that that's the conventional wisdom and the conventional wisdom is wrong. The notion that somehow the wealth gap is rooted in the fact that black people don't have financial knowledge, um, don't save, because um, for one, I think those well not think if you economists ranging from the conservative Milton Friedman to Marcus Alexis, who I mentioned in in, in the beginning uh, as the founder of the Caucus of Black Economists, have found that once you control for income, if anything, blacks actually save more than whites. So I'm going to repeat that because I don't think many people actually know or believe that. Once you control for income, blacks actually save more than whites. And then, you know, the other, the other conventional wisdom is that financial literacy is the driving force for, for the large wealth gap. Prior to, prior to this current crisis, um, Gittleman and Wolf, uh, was it Maury, Maury Gittleman and Ed Wolf, they, did a, they have a paper in the Journal of Human Resources where they show also that once you control for income, there's no, there's no racial difference in, in uh, asset appreciation between blacks and whites for those with positive assets. So, you know, that's telling. That's, you know, that, that debunks this other notion that somehow we lack financial literacy. Um, maybe we do. Maybe Americans in general lack financial literacy. If we look at savings rates for the U.S. in an international perspective, then indeed it appears that we save far too little. Um, but it's not an explanation for the black-white gap within the U.S. That's the point I want to make. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and there's, a, there's another part of that, too, is that while when you look at the indices uh, of income, there, you're looking at uh, groups of uh, categories of income, like from from 110000 to one hundred and sixty thousand um, dollars, and when people are when people like McKinsey and Company are making their conclusions about what that means, they're not taking into account or considering or considering or even reporting that African Americans are at the low end. So when mm -hmm. the economists begin to talk about the middle class. They're really talking when they when they're talking. If you're looking just at income, they're really just talking about um, working poor because blacks are at the the low end of the indices that they have de developed for their for their formulas. And yeah. and and so we're talking apples and oranges when you hear them talking about the middle class, American middle class, because most mm -hmm. of the blacks that are grouped in there really are working poor. Yeah, and you know I'm, I want to cite one more statistic that I also think is, is very telling, um, and that is if we look at so you know we believe education is an important criteria for accumulating wealth, and indeed it is, um, but it's 
it's exaggerated as a criteria for accumulating wealth, especially compared to the number one criteria, which is the family that you're born in, inheritance, bequest. That's the biggest determinant that we can measure of, of household wealth across generations. But when you look at head of households, this, is a, this also came out of the Gittleman and Wolf article that I, I cited a little while ago. If you look at households who, whose head is black and graduated from college in comparison to households whose head is white and dropped out of high school, the median wealth for that white family is higher than the median wealth for that black family. So I'm talking high school dropouts compared to college graduates. And, again, recall all the things that I mentioned in the beginning of why wealth is important. So that helps to give us a context of the problem. I want to get back to the Black Caucus and the conference that you were a part of. Um, so what was the outcome? <laughs> let me just let me just bring that out. Uh, well, the the outcome is a report. <laughs> so as as uh, a lot of these uh, conferences lead to, um, they they brought in a group of various. They brought in economists, but it wasn't just limited to economists. For example, Jim Carr, who I think speaks very eloquently on this issue of. Um, the financial crisis and what it's going to do to black-white wealth inequality. And uh, also he speaks eloquently on how we got into the financial crisis in the first place. Um, he was invited as well. Um, they, uh, again, I applaud them because they got individuals who typically might not have the microphone in settings like this to come up with bold policies and bold ideas that could actually address this, what I'm going to call, bold inequality. You probably need bold solutions to address bold inequality. So um, they listened to our ideas, and there was a discussion, and they ultimately produced a report. I, I think uh, various various entities of Congress oftentimes produce a report around budget budget time to, um, to I guess, have political influence on, on, on the discourse. Uh, I, I don't think that they, they've had much influence by their report, but it's a starting point. The ideas are out there, so it, maybe at some point they can take off, and and we can actually take the ideas from idea stage and put them into into fruition. Well, well, Doctor Hamilton, well, that is one of my. I guess that's that that strikes to the point that I'm trying to make. Once you get this this variance of ideas, mm-hmm. and I guess. This man is as president, he can hear these ideas, mm-hmm. and then he bows to the political will of people who have his ear and not necessarily his um best of uh his presidency mm-hmm. or serving his presidency or even serving the people. And I look at I look at um, Rahm Emanuel, and he mm-hmm. fits into that category for me, because what Rahm Emanuel has been responsible for, I feel, has been he's ill served this president with that never let a financial crisis go, you know, never waste that financial crisis. Well, that is simply um, 
scripted from the shock doctrine by Naomi Klein. And once you get these crises and you try to implement legislation without Mm -hmm. the necessity of going through the process, that's exactly what, like you said, he missed that opportunity. He could have not only seized that opportunity along with health care, but mm-hmm. with the what you laid out and his drive to health care, we would be in a much better place, and so would he. This nation yeah. would be in a much better place. And then, on the other hand, you have the obstructionists on the other side who were saying no to everything, who were filibustering everything. So using his presidential powers in such a crisis, you know, the first 350 billion went out under Bush with very little, you know, uh, rules. Mm-hmm. But when this president is trying to dole out the rest of it and apply rules, he's being sniped by Republicans and by the blue dogs in his own party. And for me, well, yeah. I think that I think Alpha. One of the things, and um, I think it was a, a warning shot that Rahm Emanuel uh, delivered and that this president could have done. The, when he came into the office, the American people were just so very um, concerned about TARP and that the, the, the average homeowner, the average worker in this country was getting no relief and 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 no um rescue from a spiraling economy and the president could have come in with a major program that just addressed american working people uh with this um with this full employment because now people are understanding that unemployment was the biggest folly that came out of what they call the economic rescue strategy. Mm-hmm. So he did have room to do that. I think he had political room to do that. And I think that it would have been politically wise to roll out something like this. And it, it, it's not, and Derek, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not something that was, uh, not discussed this this full employment guarantees uh for a jo- job guarantee for all citizens and to perform work necessary i think would have been welcomed by most yeah. american people and he would have been seen as a hero well he would have been seen as a hero but he was seen as a socialist and they drove that narrative through the manipulation of their media. Well, you know, that was a a political miscalculation because they're driving every narrative that they can muster up, make up, and rewrite. So what difference would it have made? For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Our Common Ground here at Blog Talk Radio. Our guest tonight is Professor... Dr. Derek Hamilton of the New School of Management and Urban Policies. And we are um, discussing really the color 
of our economy because it does have a color. The inequalities and the impediments. Derek, let's talk a little about um, uh, my uh, black business and okay. entrepreneurship. Can I, can I mention one thing about the previous conversation? And, and yes. that is that I hope that we um, hold all of our politicians, black, white, what have you, accountable, that we don't just vote out of emotion, that we actually mm-hmm. listen and hear what the platform is. And if the platform is not in, involving your interest, then um, you have a choice in who you vote for. I wouldn't say, you know, our vote shouldn't be taken for granted by anybody, including Absolutely. black politicians. Absolutely, because this baby bonds document that you sent me, I am definitely sending it to John Kerry and asking him what he knows about it and the brown guy with the barn uh, coat and a truck uh, who are my two senators from Massachusetts. I am sending these documents to them on Monday morning and asking them what they know and understand about this as a solution rather than the flailing around that 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 we are we are seeing all uh from from congress so uh, and we we do want to talk i do want to review the specifics of the baby bond um proposal and also of the full employment um national investment um National uh, Investment Employment uh, Corps, because I think that that, for those of you who are listening, this is where you can get involved. This is where you can offer to empower ideas that make sense for our community. But I do want to go back to what I, Derek, what do you think is the most important priority that black people have in participating in fixing um, public policy having to do with small uh, minority, they you know they keep calling it minority and small business, and and it really is most of the public policy really is focused or enforcement and oversight is focused on small business and not the minority part. Yeah. So I'm I'm going to sound very pessimistic about this, but, again, the issue, as far as I can see, is capital. And we until we address capital in the black community, um, we will lag behind in terms of, of business, business creation. Now, there are ways to overcome it, such as through public policy. So if we had a small business administration that was really um, keen on developing black business in, in a better manner than they are, then um, I, I think we could we could have growth in that sector. But um, ultimately, the problem is capital. Mm-hmm. And it always has been. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about drive and, and attitudes and motivation, but I don't care how much motivation and drive you got, you, you might get some people. So you can come up with anecdotal examples of people that had nothing and made it big. But that's just that, add anecdotes. Um, we, we know with any population you're going to get variants. Some people are going, to, are going to be very fortunate and some people are going to be very unfortunate. But underneath that variance in terms of luck, the, the number one ingredient for successful business is capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and small, 
small business, um, the Small Business Administration, and the funding that comes out of that tends to be extremely. The funding it tends to be extremely um, politically motivated yeah. because I mean, most most of that funding is really distributed on a regional basis rather than making decisions in in Washington about uh some some strategy to empower the policies that are in place. Yeah. I have a friend that I I'm pretty sure is listening tonight, Tamara Knopper, who is in a she's visiting at the University of Penn. She's a, a recent sociologist graduate from Temple and I think she has a brilliant paper that addresses the the um the the difference in the role that the Small Business Administration has had on minority business development and some of the, some changes they can do to actually benefit the black community in a better manner than they than they mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. One of the and all of the papers that we're referencing tonight on this show, you can go to our information center at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com, and I will have them all posted uh, by tomorrow um, afternoon or right after this program. That's www.ourcommonground-talk.ning.com. I'm glad you mentioned, and we welcome her to the broadcast, and and certainly our number uh, is 347-838-9852. If you have questions or want to make a comment about some of the things that we have discussed, but it is clear uh, Alpha just mentioned financial literacy. You were talking about financial literacy, and there are two areas of financial illiteracy that we ought to be concerned about. One of them is consumer financial literacy, but the other is um, <clears throat> policy, national policy financial literacy, understanding how investment houses work, understanding how banks work, understanding how the Reinvestment Act works so that we can begin to become resistors and organizers in our own community to empower our our, our local economies. And, and simply put, better citizens. If you want to be you know, an active citizen and, and civically engaged and you want to be informed about the policy and the policy debates. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Derek, let's talk about the banks for a minute. Um, I, I was I neglected thinking... to mention that one policy that, that I was going to mention from Tamara Knopper. That, that was a, so at one point, the Small Business Administration, they used to administer loans directly. Then they started using banks as intermediaries. I think the shift from direct policies to banking intermediaries has probably had an adverse effect on black businesses. Um, because banks require different types of, of um, one, collateralization, and two, their, their rating system of, of who's, who's worthy of a, of a loan um, may, may differ from some of the goals that an agency within the federal government might have. So that shift in and of itself has probably diminished the capacity of, of black businesses to develop. Well, I think with the problem that I think the problem that we've had with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, yeah. 
that this administration is going to begin to really assess how um, third-party distribution of federal funds are going to go. And I, I hope that's so. I, I have a sense that, that that is going to become the wave uh, in the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely Hamilton, uh, correct. Dr. Hamilton, uh, I wanted to ask you, where to, or since we're on the, on the banks, mm-hmm. um, you know, the impediment, the middleman, the implementation of this middle of these middlemen, which are the bankers who who uh, basically reconstructed the qualifications for small business loans, um, I see that as by design to choke mm-hmm. off these loans. I mm-hmm. see that as you know just you know just this mentality of let's complicate, let's put it enough, let's turn it into an obstacle course when it comes to government. And let's steer everything toward privatization because I feel that privatization costs anywhere from three to five times as much once you get it in, you know, once you get that middleman in there, once you set that obstacle course and everybody's got to jump through different hoops. And when you get down, really get right down to it, you know, we can look upon this and see that this is about the privatization of our entire, uh, of everything that the government does. They privatize the war. It costs three to five times. Black war gets three to five times as much as our soldiers. <laughs> but when you get into that scenario, when you have a, uh, a political ideology coming from one side and they are willing to push the entire nation off the cliff to get their way, just like they're talking about not raising the debt ceiling if they don't get $2.3 trillion in cuts. By the way, those trillion dollars in cuts will cost hundreds and thousands of jobs in the in the public sector. And well, it's an offset. It's a source of, off, of revenue for offsetting um, and being able to pay bonuses. <laughs> Well, that, but that's what it's but for. That's what I mean. You know, they are looking. They are shifting the wealth. They are complaining about redistribution of wealth while they are trying to redistribute the wealth upward. Yeah. But so, they, so, I mean, it it goes back to accusing everybody what you're guilty of. And when you uh, get get it into the banks, they did not want the the student loans. They they snatched the middleman from. The, the banks from the student loan program, and they were all up in arms about it because it took money away from the greedy, the people who have billions. But they didn't; they they couldn't stand to lose a few billions, and that's where we are. The political atmosphere is so contaminated, the well is so contaminated that how is it that we can expect to get anything done? And the one thing. I've all I've been waiting to ask an economist about because I don't fully understand it, and, and I would like to. What effect on the Federal Reserve if every state had a state bank like North Dakota, and we stopped dealing with the big banks as far as you know at the state level, because we would be able to uh, borrow against the state revenues 
in and of themselves and cut out that uh, that federal bank, the, the big boys. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to start with some of the stuff you mentioned, and you'll probably get an answer to the last question, which you, which won't please you, but um, it's probably because of my, my – my lack of expertise in that particular area. But but starting with, with what you began with, you know, I absolutely agree that um, banks are are capitalists first and foremost. They're self-interested. So if there are ways in which they can manipulate to generate revenue for themselves, they will indeed do that. So to expect them to carry out um, social goals, if, if, if those social goals are inconsistent in any manner with their profitability, and um, we, we're, I would say, argue that we're naive to believe that, that they will behave in that manner to, to, to maximize those social goals. We can do certain things around the edges to create incentives for them to do so, but, but they really need teeth. Like the Community Reinvestment Act, we can, we can have CRA, CRA crediting that, that has teeth that um, incentivizes banks to engage in, in socially responsible behavior. Um, so, so there are things we can do, but... At the core of it, they're first and foremost profit maximizers. So, so I I don't disagree with anything you said about that. Um, I would I would even go on to say that there's a book written by. So this this is moving a little away from that specific topic, but James Galbraith, Jamie Galbraith wrote a book fairly recently called The Predator State, which argues that politically we we have moved into a a, a world where, um, basically. Uh, Political infrastructure, the political parties in office are largely not ideal, not not governing based on their ide- ideology of of a democratic ideology or a republican ideology, but basically to um, enrich those who within their those who are within their group, be it the the black water class or the Wall Street class. But you know, I go I feel a little different and say it's not limited to Republicans. That um, Democrats actually engage in this work as well. And um, I don't know who does it even more or less, but the Democrats are definitely aren't, aren't immune to this criticism. Um, probably a, a really good study would be to examine federal contracting, uh, an analysis of of who gets federal contracting when who's in office and um, how connected those individuals might be to, the, to that federal contracting. Uh, that would be a fascinating study. I'd, I'd be interested to see somebody do it. Um, so the last question you, you, you raised is, um, a good question. Um, I, I don't think I'm going to have a really good answer for you. You know, th- there are some benefits from the states having autonomy with regards to ability to borrow um, and and to have a, a state bank that might facilitate that. Um, but um, I'm, I'm leery of giving states too much power and discretion with regards to certain things because states don't always govern in the, the mm-hmm. most responsible It's a slippery slope. Yeah, uh, for example, um, we we have an, an education system that I would desire to be more federalized. I, you know, I wish we we had a, a a more federalized education system than than leaving it so much in the hands of state and localities. I think that generates a, a great deal of value inequality. Um, but uh, to answer your question more fully about state banks, it's probably beyond my my expertise. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Block Talk Radio. We're going to take a break here. Our guest, Dr. Derek Hamilton of the New School of Management and Urban Policies, and our guest co-host, Alpha of the Alpha Show, which broadcasts 
at TruthWorks Network here at Blog Talk Radio each Saturday at 3 p.m. You, uh, we welcome your calls at 347-838-9852. I'm Janice Graham. We'll be right back. Word up. Hi, this is Miles. And you are listening to Our Common Ground, Janet Grimm, talk radio that matters. Harriet Tubman, respect. Malcolm X, respect. W.E.B., Du Bois, respect. Reverend Martin Luther King, respect. Sojourner Truth, respect. Word up, it's all about respect. Have we looked at, looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted racists, and I will repeat it, bigoted racists. If anybody wants to challenge me on that, have at, have at. Reload some Alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. More of the Alpha Show, 4 p.m., TruthWorks Network. And we hope that you will join the Alpha Show each Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. on TruthWorks Network. And on this week, premiering at TruthWorks Network, Architect of Change with Elvin Dowling. He is the change master, and we hope you'll join him at 9 p.m. at TruthWorks Network. A proportion of black households and could go a long way towards closing the racial wealth gap, especially if those policies include asset-building dimensions. Two such policies, two bold policies, one is a, sustainable child, a, a substantial child development account, what Manny Marable calls baby bonds, and I think another policy, which was discussed earlier by Professor William Darity, a Full Employment Act, which guarantees federal jobs for all willing, able-bodied Americans, would achieve some of these goals. The child development accounts would set up trust for 50 to 75 percent of all newborns with an average account of $20,000 that progressively rises to $60,000 for newborns born into the most wealth-poor families. The accounts would grow at a federally guaranteed 1.5% to 2% annual interest rate and could be accessed when the child becomes an adult for some asset-enhancing endeavor, such as purchasing a home or starting a new business. Modern electronic recording of financial data facilitates our ability to identify financial assets. Financial monitoring advances by the IRS and law enforcement agents serve as examples of the public sector's ability to measure financial assets. Further, many localities are already engaged in home value assessments, electronic home appraisals based on market. And that was our guest tonight, Derek Hamilton, presenting to the um, uh, Congressional Black Caucus. He is an assist- he is a professor at Milano, the New School 
for Management and Urban Policy, an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Economics at the New School for Social Research. Again, thank you for joining us. And Derek Hamilton, thank you for joining us and bringing all of this great uh, dialogue about uh, black wealth gaps and black economic inequalities. Let me ask you, and most of our uh, our listeners who can also reach out to us at 347-838-9852, are interested in understanding what they can do uh, to... Um, begin to look at empowerment strategies for their communities and their families. Where do you start to break down the structural impediments? I mean, the first thing you do is you 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 become aware of predatory lending and subprime mortgages that sink you from the very beginning. But yeah. what's a good strategy for individuals? Yeah, I guess that, that- it's a tough question for me because I usually look at group trends and, and populations and, and compare how do we end up with these different trends, but I, I'm probably not as prepared to give advice to specific families. But but I think you have some very wise advice to begin with, which is largely to educate oneself about the policy debates of, of what's going on and um so that you can be a, be a good citizen, so that you know what's going on, and, and that you can civically participate and, and engage in conversations and, and try to influence who is representing you, so that um, they can enact policies that, to to alleviate some of these situations. Because you know the the problems are so severe that ultimately the solutions are going to come from, in my opinion, some some federal intervention. Mhm, mhm. Now, the other question I that I have for you because you are a member of the Association of Black Economists, whether or not your group is having discussions with the Office of Domestic Policy at the White House, whether you've been invited uh to present or to make recommendations or to participate in any dialogue, discussions, planning, organizing or anything that's coming out of that office. Okay, so so there's the National Economic Association, which is largely made up, of, but not exclusively made up of, of black economists. It evolved from the caucus of black economists, which um, I mentioned one of the founders, uh, Marcus Alexis, he, he recently passed away, and, and we mm-hmm. will be doing something to honor him sometime in, in November. I mean, not November, next February. But um, the, the NEA largely is a professional organization um, that doesn't typically take political stances. Um, they organize at the National Economic Conference, and and they do other types of they do other things to try to promote uh, junior junior economists so that they can they can uh, have a, a better career and movement along their career. And they also are particularly engaged with questions to to benefit economic development of the black community. Um, but you know, the White House has reached out to not in a large public fashion. And you know, I'm careful because I'm not so sure how much they they want to publicize or whatever. But they've reached out to many different audiences, 
many different groups, and and I would say that they have indeed reached out and and at least uh, listened to some of the ideas of, of black economists. So so there have mm-hmm. been those conversations and things like that that have taken place, but mm-hmm. but not with the National Economic Association specifically, but definitely with uh, targeted black economists so that they can get a range of ideas and, and to to address some of these problems that we face. Mhm. We do have some callers who would like to talk with you, uh, Derek Hamilton. Uh, but before we go to out to our phones, another question that I have for you is your summary of what Congress, how Congress is addressing the issue of the national debt and the national deficit. You know, I think deficits and debt. The deficit is overrated as as a problem that we have to address, and I think it's being used as a fear tactic to distract us from dealing with some of the issues that that we really need to deal with. When we have economic hard times, we we, we run deficits. Um, that that just that that happens. It, it, it's structural. And if we were to run running deficits in economic hard times, I'd argue that it would be irresponsible. So counter to the popular notion that it's irresponsible to run the deficits that we're running, I, I would say that in these economic hard times, to be so overly concerned about the deficits it, in and of itself is, is irresponsible. And, um, you know, I guess particularly peeved that the way that this, that this course takes place in the discussion, tax cuts are, you know, taxes are off the table, but spending cuts are definitely um, on the table. We have to cut, 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 cut. So all of a sudden we become overly concerned with deficits after we extend what many people thought was a horrible tax bill that, that Bush enacted and not only extended it but um, uh, made it even deeper. So, you know, I, I say this, we used to call them the Bush tax cuts, but I don't think it's no longer accurate to call them the Bush tax cuts. You have to say Bush-Obama tax cuts if you're really going to be fair. Well, well he, <laughs> certainly, he certainly stepped in and allowed it. Well, well, okay, okay. He stepped in and he allowed it. And I was one of the biggest critics of him extending these Bush tax cuts because, you know, I felt that he could have let them all expire. And once he let them expire, simply go to the IRS and tell them to hold the tax rate on the lower 250000 As president, he has that power. And that's a clear-cut example of him not using the presidential powers for the better good. And I know the deal that he got, you know, and everybody talks about, you know, he had to save, he couldn't let the hostages be heard. But now look at where we are. They are saying they will not raise the debt ceiling unless they get their $2.3 trillion in spending cuts that will cause hundreds of thousands of job losses. Now, yeah. where is he going to do now? Where where does he go from here? Yeah. Well, it's not to bowl land, that's for sure. Let's go out to our phones. I believe this is Oklahoma. And uh, Don, you're on the air. I respect you. Same here, Janice. I respect you and uh, uh, Alpha. And I just wanted to call in and... Uh, Thank your guest. Thank you for bringing your guest on tonight. Dr. Hamilton, you have been very uh, informative, and I appreciate you contributing your time to uh, uh, over these airways. 
And uh, something that I just want to say that's going to really stick in my mind, which governs my my actions, and I hope others, is the fact that uh, out of uh, uh, the, the the ratio that you have uh, had put out concerning uh, the achievement of uh, monetary compar- uh, com- uh, comparison with the uh, average white family earnings, mm-hmm. that we're only uh, 15 cents uh, of us are, are achieving that. And that's, uh, you know, that speaks volumes to me as mm-hmm. to uh, uh, policies, uh, administrations, uh, organizations that we have uh, that are supposed to uh, have our vested interests at heart uh, that we should should not be ashamed of trying to uh, ask for uh, what uh, is due us. You know, I mean, other ethnic groups uh, certainly have their lobbies and certainly stick together cohesively uh, through economic language and everything else, uh, but. For us to be, uh, you know, once again, we're running the race and we're coming in not even uh, first, second, or not even showing. You know, we're coming in fourth. So I think that, uh, you know, the information that you're putting out uh, here tonight and the discussion that's taken place uh, certainly uh, should, uh, uh, you know, ring somebody's bell and wake some people up as to what, you know, the course that they need to take in order to... uh, to, you know, to deal with it, uh, this economic uh, situation we face. So thank you very much for I just wanted to, you know, make that statement, and I have no questions for you. I agree with what you, what you have said and uh, the dialogue that's been, uh, that, we've, that we have had uh, this evening. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. No, your, your comments are, are very appreciated, and, and I, I appreciate your compliments a, a lot. Um, I, I, you know, Leads me to even mention the conclusion that that uh, Sandy and I came up with when we wrote the article. Um, one of the things we we talked about in the conclusion is that you know a race blind society that does not achieve racial fairness ultimately is a race is a cruel society that just locks in inequality. Right? If we want to get away, if we want a race fair society, we need one that breaks the link of race, inheritance, and economic advantage or disadvantage across generations, because that's the problem. We need public provisions of a substantial trust fund for newborns, for families that are well poor. That would go a long way towards achieving that ideal. You know, you need something so that we have not race, you know, we shouldn't be striving for race blind. All of a sudden we become race blind when we have all this inequality. That's a problem. We need race fairness. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Don, and you have a good weekend. Uh, It's good to hear from you. one of the things that um, we we certainly um, have to work at is that critical analysis and how the national economy and economic policy affect our community. And one of the things that, and Derek, you and I didn't have a, a, an opportunity to talk about this, and before we go off the air, I certainly want to express my appreciation to Mae Jackson in Brooklyn, who mm-hmm. introduced me to you some months back. Um, and at the point that uh, we have listeners who are 
introducing us to people who can assist us in doing the critical analysis of where we are. But one of the strategies that I think that we have got to insist is that our community centers and our public schools and our nonprofit organizations and programs in our community begin to provide financial literacy to our children. I participated in a program about three years ago where a group of 25 high schoolers, seniors in high school, were brought in to spend a whole day, and they were all given financial profiles. They were either homeowners or renters. They had a job. They didn't have a job. They were in debt. They were they had credit cards and credit limits and the whole nine yards. And for the entire day, they went about doing certain tasks, you know, like they were the, some, one one person was pregnant and they had to to buy baby stuff. One person lost their job and they still had credit card debt that they had to pay for. One person was trying to buy a house and they were meeting with bankers and and uh all sorts of uh retail and financial institution people all day trying to negotiate. We have got to we have got to teach our children uh the skills of understanding how wealth and money works in their lives in a very, very early at a very, very early age. We've got to take our our young children in junior high school and elementary school and have them understand the family budget, understand how much money is coming in, how much money is going in and out and where it's going, and how to begin to save and how much a house costs and how much a car costs. A, 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 an 11th grader or a 12th grader who wants to have a car shouldn't be a person in your family listeners that don't understand what a car costs and how a car gets financed and what other costs are involved in buying a house, paying the utilities, getting the the inspection, uh, all of those things. And I really encourage that uh, to our listeners. Let's go to our phones, 111. You're on the air. I can't tell where you're calling from, and thank you very much for your call. I respect you. What other costs are involved in buying a house? 111, you're on the air. Oh, I think 111 was having a problem. It looks like a Skype call. Uh, Okay. but I also want to iterate, she is also my foundation. I, I recall her giving me my first job, a summer job, back when I was a youth working in a homeless shelter, and I, I learned great lessons from wow. that. I, you know, I could say that the sacrifices May has made in general in her life, um, people like May and May specifically have actually created an infrastructure so that someone like me could come along and, and actually look at trends and have be afforded the, the privilege of, of not – looking specifically at individuals, but actually be able to take a step back and take a bird's eye view. So so I'm, I'm very grateful. And then I also want to mention that, 
you know, I hope I'm not coming off as dismissive of specific programs like the one that you mentioned because I wouldn't argue that they aren't useful. They, they are useful, and, and, you know, I wouldn't disagree with anything you, you, you said, but, um, you know, I, I just want to also get across the message that in terms of black, white wealth inequality, the explanations mm-hmm. for it are are clear in that it is the ability to generate capital over generations. There have been um, – Natural, un, unnatural obstacles that have inhibited our ability to, to generate that. You know, starting Absolutely. from slavery, starting from mm-hmm. um, not getting 40 acres of a mule, started from literal land seizure by by terrorists taking, you know, we can call them mm-hmm. white terrorists who came and, and took accumulated land by fraud, government complicity fraud, by restrictive mm-hmm. covenants that limited where you could purchase a home, by redlining, lending and housing discrimination. Right, and we could talk about predatory subprime mortgage lending that's taking place today. So, you know, right. we have a long history of this. Uh, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going to mention two authors, well, two two books that I think are informative of of these issues, and that is one by Ira Katz Nelson. His book, When Affirmative Action Was White, that goes through and describes federal policy that generated uh, a middle class for America, but. Um, Excluded blacks from the benefits of those programs to a large extent, mm-hmm. and then there's, mm-hmm. there's black wealth, white wealth. By um, I'm going to say that these two authors are probably there are two sociologists that probably set off this whole literature. And sadly, economists lag behind this in, in looking at wealth as an indicator of of individual well-being, and particularly looking at um, black-white inequality. There's generally a focus on income and education, but but wealth is is probably the main determinant and the main indicator. And, you know, I'll mention mm-hmm. two of my mentors. Uh, I, I'd say, uh, um, look, I said they're my mentors now. Their name escapes me. That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> it, it is uh, black wealth, white wealth. They are um, Oliver and Shapiro. That, that is uh, um, Melvin Oliver and um, Shapiro. Those are the two authors that, that uh, wrote that book. Uh-huh. Yeah. Melvin Oliver and... Somebody Shapiro, but if Tom you do Shapiro, a Google, that's his name. Tom, Tom Shapiro, Shapiro. That's Tom Shapiro. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, one of the things that I I I, I mention a lot of uh, study around finance and economics uh, is because I think it opens up a whole new world for people to to understand um, some of our recent history. Uh, for instance, in the South. Eminent domain for some of the old southern families all the way down the east coast, all the way down into South Florida. Um, Eminent domain policies were laws were used to take away um, black land uh, Mm -hmm. at the turn of the century, and then it began again, and it. Uh, in the 1980s, and it all had to do with transportation most black landowners bought near what became the downtown. And when the downtowns in the 80s started exploding and expanding, especially on the East Coast uh, from Washington, D.C., all the way down into Florida, then eminent domain was used to take that land sure. and it, and 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 people have to understand the history 
of all of this to understand how blacks lost so much of what their assets and wealth was as a result of all of that, and it had to do with railroad tracks at the turn of the century. It had to do with the seaboard railroad expansion and the East Coast Railroad expansion going down from New York City into Washington, D.C., because blacks were on one side of the tracks and whites were on the other side of the track in the southern segregation scheme. But by the time the downtowns began to gentrify, then that land became valuable to commercial real estate development. I really like your usage of financial literacy. It is a way I haven't conceived of it in the past, but I will from now on, where it's not just limited to our notions of how to manage our money, but financial literacy in terms of how finance has been created over time and continues to be created across the board. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, You know, and, and, and a part of that, I come from a real estate family. Mm-hmm. Um, and a part of that... My grandfather was a real estate broker, and he dealt with segregated properties in a segregated community. And one of the things as a very young person, my parents, I was 24 years old, I had debt up the yin yang from law school and business school and 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 they were beating on me about why I hadn't bought a house when I was like 23 years old and they didn't understand what do you mean you're not going to buy land you're not going to buy a house you can't afford it if you know and 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 black people expected during that time not understanding what was happening to the black economy. Uh, it, it's really an interesting story, and I think that every person has a responsibility to tell the story of their economic history. Hmm. You know, because uh, there was a time when you were poor, you were ashamed of being poor because you couldn't figure out. It had to do with your self-esteem. Just as you said earlier in the program, people were looking at at themselves and saying, well, why can't I have that? Just as the president said, well, if you do it this way, you you can become the president of the United States too. And our children are looking around and saying, well, wait a minute. My mama is having a hard time paying the rent. What's wrong with us? Yeah. Yep. And that carries over into how they see themselves at school and how they see their futures and whether or not they are inspired to achieve. Okay. You know, and and the other thing I wanted to uh, ask you to do very quickly, we've only got uh, a few minutes left, is to, for people who have just joined us, to summarize uh, the Baby Bond program again, I think it's important for people to get that into their heads and understand it. So the Baby Bonds program is in the realm of child development accounts, but it is designed really to address the, the fact that 
children are endowed at birth with very different things, largely based on the family that they're born into. And then later on in life, their life outcomes are largely determined by that familial position in which they're born. So in a lot of ways, baby bonds are meant to to offset the fact that some of us are lucky and some of us aren't lucky, and in particular to address the fact that we have this large racial wealth gap and, um, you know, later on in life we, we see continued patterns of inequality, so how can, how can we address this longstanding pattern of inequality? So their child development accounts that would be given that would be given to anywhere from half to 75% of all newborns, the average trust would be $20,000. It would progressively rise to about 60000 for children born into the most wealth-poor families. And if we have these accounts grow at a federal guaranteed rate of about 15 to 2% interest that can be redeemed when the child turned 18 towards various finance or asset-enhancing endeavors, endeavors such as purchasing a new home so that they can have that home both to live in at, as well as an, an asset security that, that will grow over time and that they can eventually even pass down or if they want to start a new business, they can have capital to start a new business, or even finance and education, but some asset-enhancing endeavor. Um, and it would largely address the black-white wealth gap because we know that blacks and whites are so dis dis disparate when it comes to wealth. We, I'm going to cite a statistic I mentioned earlier. 85% of black households are below the median white household in terms of wealth. And if we look at the overall world gap, it amounts to about $110,000, or you can think of it in terms of, of cents to the dollar. The typical black household has 10 cents of the dollar of the typical white household. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, in terms of... Well, on the full employment, mm -hmm. on the government being the spender of last resorts and the full employment, I think that you touched on that also, and I think that is very... Uh, very eye-opening. Mm -hmm. So, you, would you want me to summarize that, or is that please, please? Okay. So, a full employment act would be one where the government is the employer of last resort. Uh, uh, again, it would have particular significance in economic bad times, such as the re the times, the current times that we're in, where we're faced with nine percent unemployment and upwards to sixteen percent unemployment in, in, for for the black community. The jobs would be used for useful things that our government needs in terms of both physical and human infrastructure development, such as bridges, roads, rapid transit, building building housing for those that don't have housing, uh, hospitals, schools. We can come up with any number of projects. Um, the program would limit our need for subsistence programs like TANF and SNAPs, minimum wage, because it would discipline the private sector, health insurance form, again, by discipline the private sector to provide some minimum level of benefits for their workers. It would stimulate the economy, reduce foreclosures, avoid worker skill and motivation deterioration. It would provide opportunities for stigmatized populations like ex-offenders. It would reduce social costs such as crime, drug use, and out-of-wedlock marriage. And then it would structurally change the U.S. economy away from low-wage work to a more higher wage work, especially, which is of special significance given our growing, in growing world economy or growing global economy 
and where the U.S. is losing its competitive edge, particularly when it's faced with competition for low-wage work. Mm-hmm. We're going to go out to our phones again. Thank you for that that wonderful summary. I think that people need to know that these solutions are reasonable, they're doable, but we have to have the political will to raise them in the public dialogue. Ron Stevens, you're on our common ground. I respect you. Thank you for your call. I respect you right back. Thanks for taking it. Um, is Derek still there? I am, yes, sir. Yeah, Derek. Um, you know, I'm just looking over your bio in that here. And having been a researcher for many, many years, um, and, and I understand your want and, 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 and that to, to help your community. I understand that. Um, but when I look at your bio here and, and I end up with the um, some of these uh, institutes that you're attached to um, and follow them through to to the international uh, migration and multinational uh, multicultural policies of which I, I got from uh, your site, um, this is straight United Nations. Now, the United Nations uh, is pushing Agenda 21. The United Nations is teaching our children through UNESCO that global warming is real. Um, so, you know, if you could explain how being attached to the United Nations, which which goal is the death of nation-state to bring it under the control of one world government, um, how how are you hooked up with these guys? Okay, well, actually, I'm not aware that I'm attached to the United Nations, but but I can speak well, to it you are. Okay, in which way am I attached to the United Nations? Well, I was just doing some runs on you here, or some checks, which I do on everybody, and I and I would suggest okay. everyone that's going to vote in the next election take your candidate uh, okay. and Google in um, uh, all United Nations. Um, organizations which are literally hundreds of and if your uh, candidate is attached to any of these outfits vote for somebody else because their their goal is is uh, death of nation state um their goal is what ron death of nation state it's very plainly written uh it's in their documents i've been studying this for 30 some years now um, and everything that is going on in America that you see as bad, uh, your economics, your schools, your health, like Obama health care is UN health care. It's one world health care. It's not Obama's health care. So people are buggering about Obama, and, and I'm definitely not an Obama fan, but that's not the point. The so point is... Respond. That, I'll, I'll respond. Please do. Uh, for okay. one, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily familiar that I'm, I'm that well I definitely don't receive income from the United Nations but um, I'm not opposed to receiving income from the United Nations I'd be happy to receive income if they would offer it to me um, but but I can tell you that my ideas are my own so the organizations that I do work for um, I do have the the privilege and benefits of expressing my ideas um, so I, yeah. I'm fortunate in that regard and, and I'm committed by my ideas and the statements that I make in the state and I stand by them 
Well, we're certainly, Ron, we thank you for your call. We're running out of time. Uh, Derek uh, Hamilton, we certainly look forward to you coming back to Our Common Ground. And for those of you who are listening and you're interested in learning more about some of the ideas that uh, Derek has expressed and presented tonight, they will be on the Our Common Ground Community Center at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com. Derek, thank you so much, my brother. I am so proud of you. Uh, oh, that's for those so kind of you. Who think, <laughs> for those of you who think that the Joshua generation is not on it, you can certainly look at the work that Professor Derek Hamilton is doing. Alpha, thank you so much for being with us. I knew you would be on the political side. Um, I'm not sure that we have uh, <clears throat> haven't uh, created just another opportunity, Derek, to talk more about these two major economic uh, public policy uh, perce- um, um, presentations and concepts and theories about how we close the wealth gap in this country. Thank you so much. We look forward to you coming uh, back again at Our Common Ground, and best wishes to you and your work at the new School of Management and Urban Policies. You've been listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Graham. Don't forget to join us on Monday night, TruthWorks Network, we're going to be running the full documentary on our brother who is resting in words, Gil Scott Herring at 10 p.m. On Wednesday, it's Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling, uh, the premiere show at 9 p.m. And don't forget next Saturday, the Alpha Show at 3 p.m. At TruthWorks Network, it's all about Speaking truth to power and ourselves, I'm Janice Graham, and we hope to see you with us next week here at 10 p.m., where we're going to be looking at the case of Mumia Abdul-Jabal. We hope that you will join us, and thank you so much. And don't forget to find us on Facebook and become one of our friends at Facebook. We hope that you will do that and um, be well on this very wet New England weekend. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.
You've been listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham at Blog Talk Radio. Thank you so much for being with us. We do our best to speak truth to power and ourselves. We hope you'll join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., right here in the Wild Wild West.